Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Cyber Reason, a cybersecurity company dedicated to helping companies end cyber attacks on computers, mobile devices, servers, and the cloud. Details at cyberreason.com. And Americans for the Arts. I'm Carrie Bringhurst. Eighteen Republican governors, including Utah Governor Spencer Cox, have signed a letter to President Biden. They're asking him to control what they call a crisis on the southern border. And they're calling on President Biden to take action immediately, stating that the crisis is too big to ignore because it's beginning to spill over the border into U.S. states. They cite that recently the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has called on governor's states to identify potential housing locations for migrants and that private organizations and nonprofits are being asked to house unaccompanied migrant children. The letter also states the cause of the border crisis is due to what they call reckless federal policy reversals executed within Biden's first 100 days in office. And according to the letter, the last thing America needs, they say, is self-created crisis that exploits families, undermines public safety, and threatens national security. And the U.S. Department of the Treasury has released its spending amounts and guidelines for the $350 million billion in pandemic relief funding. Roughly $2.5 billion of that money will be coming to Utah. The money can be used to support public health expenditures, small businesses and workers, as well as communities and industries hit hardest by the COVID-19 pandemic. Sophia DiCaro is executive director of the Utah Governor's Office of Planning and Budget. She says plans are still being made on how to spend that money here in Utah. That's UPR News for now. I'm Carrie Bringhurst. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Part memoir, part meditation on poetry, part conversation with her husband, friends, and the many animals that live with and around her, Catherine Cole's The Stranger I Become probes the permeable boundary between inner life and outer thought and action, science and experience. Coles begins this collection of lyric essays with a meditation on walking the urge as she writes to move beyond to understand myself as a stranger estranged the essays travel always on foot from cole's home with its indoor and outdoor birds into the canyon her home overlooks itself populated with creatures ranging from voles to owls moose bobcats and coyotes from there always looking always walking often in company they move into her own neighborhood and through other cities domestic and foreign which, alongside the poems that inhabit her, make up the fabric of her experience. Uh, Catherine Coles is author of two novels, seven collections of poems, and the memoir Look Both Ways. She's a recipient of grants from the NEA and NEH Guggenheim Foundation as well. She served as Poet Laureate of Utah and was inaugural director for Poetry Foundation's Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute. She's a distinguished professor of English at University of Utah. And she joins us uh, on the line. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate you being with us uh, today. So interesting, a new collection. Um, was this written during uh, COVID, or, or did you have it pretty much wrapped up before then? It was pretty much wrapped up before then. In fact, it was um, actually accepted by the publisher before the last two essays were written, and then uh, they came one at a time. The last essay was written during covid uh, during the the first awful months of COVID. Yeah. 
Well, I wonder, I, I understand you have the book uh, with you. And I wonder if we could just start start with, uh, have you read something to begin here? Uh, so page 13, this is the, the first the first essay. Um, okay. Page 13, then over the page to the break. Can do it. Um, so this essay is called The Stranger I Become. And there's an epigraph from Sharon Bryan's poem, Use Capricious, in a sentence where she says, walking is good for thinking, but not vice versa. I am known to walk a lot by modern standards, on most days for seven or more miles. Fitness isn't the point, at least not all of it. About goats, Sharon Bryan tells us they keep their balance by staying in motion. And balance isn't all physical, at least for me. Walking spins ideas free. Its rhythm puts me in touch with myself. And the distance I travel reminds me I am always loose on the planet. Setting a pace, sallying forth, reminds me, mind comprising as it does every part of my body, skin, eyes, ears, and not least my heart, which tells me I am frightened or in love before I know to ask. My senses, not my brain, create the ongoing sense of change I know as mind. Without my moving body, my brain would be a dull gray blob inert, like it or lump it. Walking enacts this change and its constancy. Philosophers have Heidelberg's Philosophenweg or Philosopher's Walk, which is open also to physicists and mathematicians, many of whom are great walkers and even to poets. You can reach it from Heidelberg Station on foot if you're willing to walk 40 minutes or so through the less picturesque suburbs to get there. From it, you can contemplate the ruined castle on the other side of the valley and consider how destruction comes to all bodies, often so slowly we don't notice. So you say you uh, you walk often seven or more miles a day? Yes, I do. Uh, I'm also a runner, so I count those miles uh, in the miles that um, I say I walk. But yeah. I, I transport myself that distance on foot. Right. Uh, I was struck by this philosopher's walk. You have to walk a great distance to get to the walk, sounds like. Well, you you could take a taxi. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what's the fun um, in that, but right? But I, yeah. I choose to walk, yeah. Yes. Well, in fact, you say when you, you know, go go to various cities for, for whatever reason, you know, for work, for example, you um, you choose a hotel at least three miles away from, from where you're meeting. I do. Um, I'd like to have that time uh, to mentally and physically prepare myself from what is often a long day of sitting and conversation. And, you know, poets are very introverted people, even those of us who have learned to perform extroversion. Uh, we require that, that time with ourselves and, and that walk uh, both before the workday begins and then after the workday ends going back um, provides me with that space and also lets me get to know a city in a very different kind of way than if I were taking taxis everywhere or hopping onto the underground. Um, getting to know a city at the pace of, at a human pace, uh, is something that is really valuable to me. 
I love this passage. You're talking about London in this case. You say, I love emerging from under trees and birdsong into urban mix of shops, restaurants, statues of figures whose names I may or may not know, even crowds. Uh, that is a, a wonderful way to get to know a city. Yeah, it is. You you get to understand the pace and rhythm. You get to understand how one neighborhood is really uh, different from another neighborhood. And London, of course, uh, is such a marvelous city for its parks. There are many walks that you can take that will deliver you from one very urban neighborhood into another very urban neighborhood via um, swans, grass, and roses. Uh, you go on to say that there are at least three three versions um, uh, when, when you do a walk uh, and you go back again, there are at least three versions of it. Uh, you have your memory, your imagination, and your desire. Um, yeah, that's true because, uh, you know, one thing that is true about walking and one thing I love about walking is that desire is inherently involved. There's a destination. And the desire to arrive at that place and moment in the future is an inherent part uh, of the journey. But you also have, uh, and, you know, this is part of really getting to know the neighborhoods. You have your previous map of that neighborhood, which might be undergoing alteration as you're walking through it again. And then you also have, um, when I talk about imagination, I'm thinking about the way in which we're always constructing reconstructing a place in the present as we are present within it. Um, a place is never exactly what we think it is. It's always tied up with our invention of it, uh, our romanticization of it sometimes uh, in time. And so uh, surprise, I guess, uh, noticing mm-hmm. something new. Do you ever go the opposite mm-hmm. way? Disillusion. <laughs> something disappoints you. <laughs> Um, you know, what sometimes you get is some, I change hotels, and we're using London as the model, but this is also true um, in Paris, where, where I'll stay in a particular hotel for um, X number of visits. Uh, and then the time will come when you never really know a neighborhood, but where I feel so familiar with that neighborhood that I'm not getting that the same sense of surprise that I used to get out of the travel, and then and then I'll switch um, to a different hotel. The one I, in Paris where I stay now, which is in a not great neighborhood by by the um, Gare du Nord uh, uh, train station, one of the things I love about it is that there are so many routes through so many different neighborhoods to get to so many places uh, in the city so that I can always make things new from that hotel moving out. So you've been to a lot of different places. What are, are there, uh, is there a, a favorite place you tell us about maybe we haven't been to? Um, well, some of the most interesting walking that I've done, uh, I did in Indonesia. And uh, one of the things that makes it very interesting is that Indonesia is a very hot uh, and humid country. And um, the the people who live there very sensibly do not walk quickly through the day. And so they just uh, quite logically and perceptively think that you're crazy to be (laughs) doing that. And so one of the things that happens is that you're getting, um, and they're very friendly, um, outgoing people in many places there. And so 
Um, if you're walking through a city, they won't just look at you as if you're out of your mind, but they'll actually stop and engage you in conversation about what this insane thing is that you're doing. And wouldn't you rather be riding on the back of your motorbike or whatever, um, whatever they have to offer you at the, at the moment? And when you say, no, I, I'm, I want to walk, I'd like to walk, they, uh, they just shake their heads and smile wisely. <laughs> at you and let you go on your fool's way. Yeah, <laughs> as they consider it, your fool's way, yes. Your uh, fool's way, yeah. I want to follow up. Something struck me a couple of minutes ago in the conversation. You, in passing, you you talked about poets, uh, I guess poetry being kind of an introverted activity, but, uh, but then you're involved in things like, well, this conversation now, or, or reading or whatever, public events, and you perform extroversion. Uh, tell yeah. me about that. Well, and many, many poets, I would say most poets, uh, earn their living through teaching, right? And so there's this sense in which you are constantly engaging with the personalities and persons and minds of other people, which is an incredibly rewarding thing to do. But it's almost, I think, for I'm not going to say for all poets, but for many poets, almost a, a kind of physical exertion to do that, to engage in that, because our natural uh, state is, um, you know, to be alone in our in our own heads. And I think I was fortunate in that I began my college education as a theater major. I thought I was going to be an actress, and so that performance piece of it. Uh, comes naturally to me, but it also comes with all of that adrenaline of performance. So those very public kinds of engagements, I think, are really exhausting mm. to people who are naturally introverted. In that uh, passage you read, I'll just read the sentence again. You say, my sense is not my brain create the ongoing sense of change I know is mind. And you tell, uh, elsewhere in this, uh, you uh, write that you tell your students... Uh, I may be getting this wrong, but without without the rest of the body, your brain is just meat, right? What are you trying to convey well, I would, there? Yeah, I mean, I would say with the rest of the body, the ah, whole body, yeah. um, in a sense, is, is just meat unless you are working to enliven it. But students in, in um, literature and philosophy, et cetera, tend to have very... Um, kind of romantic and complicated notions of what of what the mind is. And for them, and for me too, it's very um, taken up with the idea of language. We believe about ourselves that we are constructed through language and beyond language. Um, there's, there's no reality. And um, on the one hand, I mean, I want them to keep more than one idea in mind at the same time. And one idea is, yes, we do construct ourselves and the world, et cetera, through the lens of language. This is what gives us the tissue of our experience. But on the other hand, um, every sense that our body gives to us uh, is what allows us to use language to construct our sense of reality. And that is just meat. Mm. Right? That's It's deeply physical. It's deeply... Uh, um, invested in nature and the natural world, um, and you know our souls, in my opinion, are constructed out of that interaction between meat and this human invention, and not only human invention, this invention of language that some 
you know, sophisticated mammals are able to engage in. This is jumping to uh, another essay, but... um Jumping off uh, something you you said there, students need to keep at least a couple of ideas, maybe divergent ideas in mind there. <laughs> and uh, you write, I need at least three separate divergent, even dissonant images, ideas, and or facts to begin a poem. And you go on to say, enough to create blissful anxiety through the need to manage not uh, attention so much as the tension I generate by being myself. Tell me about that. You need at least three separate divergent, even dissonant images, and you want blissful anxiety. You know, when I was a when I was a young person, um, I was in an educational situation that was actually really wonderful. When I was learning to write poems, but it was a moment in, in time in poetry in which there were a lot of people who thought that a poem could only be about one thing, and this was a constant problem for me because um, I am by nature a kind of gatherer, somebody who's trying to make sense of not only of one single part of my experience in a given moment, but of pretty much everything that's going on <laughs> in that moment, what I'm seeing, what I'm thinking, what I've read, um, uh, what I had for breakfast, right? All of these things are, are coming together. And um, the management, it's the management of those it's like juggling, right? It's the management of those different things that allows me to um, create meaning out of what my actual experience is instead of reducing my experience. And, of course, there's always reduction. You're all, you, you never get everything in, nor would you want to, because not everything is interesting. But to try to find the relationship between every interesting thing that's happening in that moment, everything that pertains, um, is the difficulty and also the pleasure of making the poem. Um, another thing I try to get my students to get their brains around is that the pleasure of poetry is really the pleasure of difficulty, um, of what is complicated, not what is simple. Before we go to a break, uh, I want to come back to the topic of walking. We've talked about walking in uh, different cities, um, making sure that you have opportunity to, to walk and, and discover these surprises, etc. cetera. Uh, what about in Salt Lake City? Um, you, uh, I'm, I don't know. You, you would assume you've consumed everything. There no surprises left. <laughs> um, well, I've lived in Salt Lake City for most of my almost 62 years now, and uh, I've watched a lot of it, but my knowledge of the city is really around the heart of the city and the foothills, so I know the neighborhoods where I've grown up and lived in Sugar House and near the university. Uh, I still often... Uh, or I did before the pandemic, and I assume I will again, um, walk from my house, which is way up on 18th Avenue, uh, overlooking City Creek Canyon, um, down to the university uh, door-to-door. It's about three miles from my house to my office. And then um, I get this wonderful downhill walk um, on my way in, and then on my way home I have this very intense climb back up to the top of the foothills, and I try to take different routes. Uh, I often walk downtown, uh, again, same kind of situation. And, again, it's partly the pleasure of, of difficulty uh, and the, the ability to let the body work out the problems and conundrums of the day um, easy on the way in uh, and more strenuous on the way out. 
Well, let's take a break. If you've just joined us, we're talking with uh, Catherine Coles. Uh, she has served as Poet Laureate of Utah. She's a distinguished professor of English at University of Utah. Latest book is The Stranger I Become. The subtitle is on walking, looking, and writing. And uh, following the break, uh, Catherine Coles, I want to talk about, uh, you talk about that you live, you say, I live exactly on the interface. And uh, so you hear coyote calls, and uh, you you say you shared a long stare with a mountain lion, which is yeah. <laughs> an experience a lot of us haven't had. Uh, I want to talk about that when we come back uh, following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members. And Cash Arts, presenting the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber with Kurt Bester, Dallin Vale Bayless, David Osmond, Nicole Writing, Lisa Hopkins-Segmiller, and Lexi Walker at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan, May 21st and 22nd. More information at cashearts.org. I'm Jasmine Mesa, one of the bilingual reporters at Utah Public Radio. This year we have been working on increasing the diversity of voices you hear on UPR, and that is where I come in. I produce news stories in Spanish each week, and right now I've been reporting a lot of COVID-19. But as things continue to open up, I will be reporting on community events and other resources. Tune in on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. to listen to my stories in Spanish and visit upr.org to read them in English. This week in This American Life. In New York, mostly people have given up on that 7 p.m. ritual, you know, where they bang pans and make noise as tribute to essential workers and healthcare workers. Except on 118th Street in East Harlem. They haven't stopped. What it's about, that's what's changed over these months. Listen this week. Saturday morning at 10, here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Catherine Coles, Distinguished Professor of English at Utah, University of Utah. And uh, she is out with a new book of essays. It's called The Stranger I Become. Uh, that is out. I should mention here that there is an event coming up, the King's English. Uh, it's a virtual event, June 3rd, 6 p.m., where Catherine Coles will discuss The Stranger I Become. She'll be in conversation with uh, Catherine Cowles, author of Maps and Transcripts of the Ordinary World. And that's a free virtual event to take place on Crowdcast. You must register to participate uh, you can go to the King's English uh, website to do that. So that is coming up June 3rd. Uh, so Catherine Coles, um, I wonder, if, uh, to, to begin this segment, I wonder if you could have you read uh, another page here, uh, page 17. And uh, to set this up, you talk about uh, how you, you've talked about your walks, uh, walking seven miles a day on average, and uh, a lot of different walks, different cities. I guess during the... Heaviest part of winter, uh, sometimes your walks are on the treadmill. Yes, uh, I'm very fortunate that I have a treadmill that's set up directly in front of a floor-to-ceiling um, glass window that looks out over City Creek Canyon. Uh, and it feels as if I'm walking off a cliff. Yeah, it sounds beautiful. Uh, um, so shall I read this? Yes. Okay. As the sun rises, finches flutter up from the oak's shelter by the score to pick at feeders my husband, Chris, keeps full. He changes out types of seed, 
blocks of suet and insects, and in the summer, sugar water and orange halves dabbed with grape jelly to attract birds coming through in waves as the seasons change. The small birds draw hawks, which ride the canyon updrafts into the sky or plummet over the roof, sometimes just a few feet away from where I startle at their swift appearances. Occasionally, a weasel or fox wanders through, or a lone, elusive bobcat stalking the raccoons our feeders also draw. And once, years ago, a moose, gigantic and snow-lit dark, who paused to strip the bark from the aspens out front. I don't notice every such event, even when I am awake and facing it squarely. Chris installed a mount for my laptop on the treadmill, and over time I have learned to type at four miles per hour and read at seven if the reading is easy. I can compose syllabi while walking or grade papers or mark up dissertations or answer the constant stream of anxious emails from students. As you might guess, I don't get carsick either, thank goodness, or airsick or seasick. But when I do raise my eyes from the screen and cast my gaze beyond the glass, I move not out of my room, familiar and disorganized for my sole convenience, but out of myself. The canyon along... Did you want me to stop there? Uh, Yeah, yeah, stop there. Okay. Um, Yeah, I note this, that when you raise your gaze beyond the glass, you Mm -hmm. move out of yourself. Yeah. So um, the subtitle of this book is on walking, looking, and writing. And looking is a huge piece of this for me. Um, The book, as well as being a meditation on poetry and on walking, is also a meditation on perception. And uh, on that liminal space uh, that exists between myself in here, uh, as I am experiencing my own thinking, and myself in there, out there, which is the world to which my senses give me access. Um, And uh, I'm really, really interested in the ways in which the lenses or mechanisms that we use for looking at and also constructing our reality really shape that reality. and that goes back to this idea of, you know, the bodies just meet, but we're also using, we have this tool of language. We also have, um, you know, the, the tools of vision and taste and touch, uh, et cetera, that are constantly helping us to move back and forth between um, our rich interior worlds and the also rich worlds that are outside us until we bring them in or navigate that space back and forth. Mm. I want to talk about, as I uh, said before the break, the, the interface. You, you say you live exactly on the interface. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so you hear coyote calls. Um, yeah. <laughs> you write that once on, <laughs> on Radiolab, you heard a biologist claim, adamantly you say, that reports of people hearing coyotes singing to each other are false. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yes. Well, I mean, I still can't quite believe it, and and um, I went back and found the episode uh, when I was writing the essay because I thought surely I I invented this, surely I made this up, but but no, I hadn't invented it, and it, it so Radio Lab has this whole episode that's mostly about like nighttime encounters 
of people with wildlife, and coyotes were a, a very central part of this. And um, uh, I listened to this, and then I listened to it again, and the biologist just insisted there is no evidence that coyotes um, make these sounds, and I and posited that um, it was probably feral dogs who were doing that. But I've, you know, been outside on the on the wildland um, side of our house, right, which sits on this line, um, listening to my coyotes, listen, uh, my coyotes, listening to groups of coyotes trying to lure my dogs um, beyond the fence that they were not able to cross or get out of. Um, and there is a big difference between the language of coyotes and the language of dogs, even though the language of coyotes is deeply seductive to dogs. The dogs hear it, but they do not speak it. Uh, right. Yeah. You say the, the dogs try to uh, respond. Right. But 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 you mm-hmm. you say you can tell the difference. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, I can tell the difference. So tell me about your you talk about uh, pizza delivery man who was it sounds like he was unnerved <laughs> by by a coyote call. Um, he was uh, unnerved by. Um, a, yes. By the sound of the coyote. And um, this was complicated him also by the fact that we have, um, in order to dissuade, it's totally ineffective, but we went through a period of trying to dissuade the deer from eating, eating my husband's rhododendrons, which would turn out to be candy for deer. Um, we would put fake coyotes um, in the yard as sort of scarecrows uh, for the deer. We've taken them away now because they were only effective for, you know, two weeks. Um, to keep the the deer away, but they startled humans um, quite effectively. Um, but anyway, he he was listening to the coyotes, and you know, again, it is an incredibly distinctive sound. It's a wild sound; nobody would mistake uh, mistake them for anything else. And but he actually thought that maybe we had wild packs of dogs wandering wander in the neighborhood up here, and I said, no, no, it's just coyotes. And he he was much reassured by the idea. He was much happier at the idea of wild creatures than feral creatures, and maybe that's a sensible human position to take. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you say you, you, you shared a long stare with a mountain lion. T- tell me about that. How close were you? Um, this was in City Creek Canyon. I was running, and uh, across the road, maybe 10, 20 feet in front of me um, from the creek side up onto the hillside. And then it stopped on the hillside and turned around and looked at me. And we were about 10 feet uh, away from each other. And um, it was just a beautiful, beautiful animal. And my joke which is a joke my husband does not appreciate, is that we were both trying to figure out who weighed more. <laughs> um, and my husband's response is that the, the cat weighed more. So here's a, here's a um, pepper spray for you. Please carry it. <laughs> uh, yeah, understandable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, were, were you frightened? What was your feeling? I was exhilarated um, and Fear is a part of that, you know, the adrenaline of it. Um, and I, I did this thing where you try to make yourself look as big as possible, mm-hmm. 
Unfortunately, I wasn't at all, I think if I'd run away, the um, encounter could have ended less happily than it, than it did. But I, there was no way I was leaving as long as the animal was just standing there looking at me. It was, um, it was just a moment of nerve and excitement. You talk uh, elsewhere about, uh, you know, encounters, not only with this mountain lion, but other, you know, looking into the eyes of wild animals. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you don't tend to anthropomorphize uh, like, uh, you know, sometimes we do. Yeah, I want to I be careful about this because, um, I no, I do not think that animals have um, the same agenda or experience uh, or emotional life, et cetera, that we have. But I've lived with enough animals and close by enough animals that I do believe that they have agendas and experience and emotional lives. I just don't think that they are identical to mine. And so I, I want to say that I don't, I don't project human uh, ideas onto them, but that I would like to be very careful to give them their full space as um, creatures who are conscious and intelligent. What does living on the interface do for you? Um, I wonder, what, what do you think it uh, does for you? Many of us don't live on the interface, right? We live downtown, right? right? Or uh, and, and then we, we go out into uh, s- s- more wild places. You, you're living right on the interface, you say. Yeah, and I, in fact, I'm, I'm looking now through the space of my husband's greenhouse, which is full of orchids, and then just beyond the glass uh, is the, um, are the oaks from the canyon coming up and, and pressing against the house. And um, the birds, I just saw a hawk kind of flutter by uh, a minute ago. There's one that likes to perch just outside where, where I'm sitting. And um, so I would say that one thing that it permits me is to be at home and still be transported, really fully taken out of myself. Um, and it reminds me that even though I'm human, and it is the human's nature to build elaborate shelters with labor-saving devices, et cetera, et cetera, that um, I am still a natural creature, even in my created, self-created environment. Mm-hmm. If you just joined us, we are talking with Catherine Coles. She's a former Utah Poet Laureate. She's a uh, distinguished professor of English at University of Utah. She's out with a new collection. It's called The Stranger I Become. Uh, we'll, we'll go to a break. Uh, but before we go to break, I want to mention this event at the King's English uh, at, in, in quotes, it's a virtual event, on June 3rd, uh, 6 p.m. And uh, Catherine Coles will be discussing this new collection uh, with uh, fellow poet Catherine uh, Cowles author of Maps and Transcripts of the Ordinary World. It's a free virtual event uh, taking place on Crowdcast, and you need to register to participate. You can go to the King's English um, website to do that. Uh, The book is out now, uh, Stranger I Become, and available. Um, And after a break, I want to talk about uh, your interesting discussion about your, I guess, your journey as as a poet. 
Uh, your goals early on are not the same as your goals now. In fact, you, your your audience has changed, interestingly. And I want to discuss uh, this, this idea of the stranger. You've become the, the title. And this, um, what you want now is not to avoid danger, but to be a little afraid at all times. <laughs> Talk about that. Uh, more following this. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, and this week we are getting stinky with the unsung heroes of the cheese world, the cheesemongers. We'll learn about a wild competition designed to crown the best cheesemonger in the land. We'll learn how to identify cheeses by taste and smell. We've got answers to all your cheesy questions. That's the Splendid Table from APM, American Public Media. Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. The Keepers, archiving the now. A new special from the Kitchen Sisters and PRX. I'm your host, Francis McDormand. Stories of can-do people. Maybe there's something I can do. Must-do people. Get-it-done people. People call me climate chick at my school. People who are grappling with the now. Brotherhood. With where we are. Sisterhood. And where we've got to get to. Unconditional love. The Keepers, coming to your station soon. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We are talking with uh, Catherine Coles. Uh, she's the author of two novels, seven collections of poems, the memoir, Look Both Ways, and the new book is called The Stranger I Become. And uh, she's with us uh, for another uh, 15 minutes in this discussion. You can join us if you would like by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. I was very interested, Catherine Coles, in your discussion uh, in the book uh, about how your goals have changed uh, uh, as a poet uh, from early on to, to now. I wonder if you could talk about that. So starting with, what what were your concerns as a poet starting out? Well, they were the right concerns for a young poet, and I hope that my um, students, especially the early, early ones, share them. And by the way, I should quickly mention that the other Catherine Coles pronounces her name the same way that I oh, do. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, although it's yeah, although it's pronounced Cowles, um, it's spelled Cowles. She pronounces it Coles, and she was a, a student of mine uh, many years ago. And um, what I want my students at the beginning to do is what I did, which is learn the craft, learn how to make a a line, learn how to make a poem, learn how to fit it all together um, in a way that is aesthetically satisfying. And this is a long, long, long process. And I think that um, during that time, what you're looking for is to get as close as you can to making the perfect poem, maybe as that poem is defined by the moment and the aesthetic in which you are participating. Um, and then my advanced students, what I'm hoping as they're finishing their PhDs with me, for example, what I want them to do is become, there's a kind of carefulness, right, that is instilled by this constant close attention to craft. As the craft becomes more invisible to you and more automatic, as you, as you are automatically able to reach for the right tool for the task um, in the building of the poem, I want my students to become braver. I want them to leave more space for the reader in the poem. I want them to leave more gaps. I want them not 
to try to stitch everything up absolutely tightly um, and to understand that what they're really preparing is not um, their own strictly regulated communication, but a kind of vessel um, that a reader can enter and have the reader's own experience uh, in entering that poem. And, you know, one of the things I say, especially to my undergraduates, is, you know, what do you think, what are you trying to do when you write a poem? And most of them will say they're trying to express themselves. And then I say, do you think that a reader coming to your poem really cares about how you feel? What does the reader care about? And they immediately say, oh, the reader, when I read, I care about how I feel not about how the poet feels. And so figuring out how to really create a space that provides for the most interesting, most complicated, most exhilarating experience for the reader actually requires that I let go a little bit uh, of whatever were my own initial intentions for the poem. You say the urge to, uh, quoting you, the urge to move beyond to understand myself as a stranger, estranged, became more pressing as as you <laughs> went on your journey. Uh, tell me about this. Well, you know, so I talk about self-expression and how I want to move self-expression away from the center of the poem. But one of the things that moves in to fill that gap is my own experience. And I actually think it's a lot more fun uh, to write a poem uh, in which I've sort of moved my intentionality and my desire to uh, express myself out of the center of the poem and instead move the idea of experience uh, and risk and, um, again, that kind of exhilaration of being a stranger into the center of the poem. If you want to express yourself, you, you can only express what you know of yourself. But if you want to discover uh, that stranger in the poem and also allow the reader to discover the stranger in the poem, you have to set what you think you know about yourself and about selfhood in general aside. Then you say, what I wanted, what I want now is not to avoid danger, but to be a little afraid at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you are regulating the self that comes into the poem in a pretty strict way, you get to do a certain amount of image control. Um, you know, you if you're making everything neat and tidy, uh, I always say to my students, you know, the the don't think that the actual poet in curlers and coffee-stained pajamas is the poet that's being presented to you on the page, right? The poet that's being presented to you on the page is a much more curated version. And I don't want curlers and stained pajamas in my poems, but what I do want in my poems is that um, it's still a somewhat less curated uh, and more in the act of discovery and construction version of myself in the poem. You uh, you quote uh, Emily Dickinson uh, you know several times uh, throughout these collections. Uh, I want to just read this sentence. Meanwhile, Emily Dickinson, my perfect stranger, whom I will neither be nor know. Um, tell me about that, and and talk a little bit about Emily Dickinson. What many people, of course, respond uh, to her. You obviously do. Tell me about that. Yeah, um, and. Uh... I've read Emily Dickinson since I was actually a child. Um, 
many of her poems are presented to us as children's poems. And I think for a long time, as I was moving into my adulthood as a poem, I, I knew her, she lived inside me, but I didn't pay a lot of attention to her. And partly that was because um, the version of her that was given to us was so domesticated. Um, it was so, you know, white-dressed, maiden, spinster, shut in her room. And it took me a long time to realize um, that as a, as a poet and as an imagination, she is a wild woman. She is, uh, you know, she's just out there, and you don't notice it because she's learned to give you these poems that fall just inside this idea of what a lady poet uh, is and what a lady poet is doing. But then if you take uh, a little bit of a closer look, if you return to her, you see that she is um, undefinable. And in a way, that's what I'm talking about as my goal, right, is to be that risky, that wild, that undefinable in my poems, but also to provide the reader with a kind of foothold where on a lot of different levels the reader can say, I know that I'm in a poem and I know I'm going to be okay here, which Dickinson gives us. Yeah, yeah, yeah certainly, certainly. Um, I, I, I didn't prep you for this, but if you, if you happen to have a passage you'd like to read here near the end of our conversation, I would give you that uh, opportunity. Uh, yeah, well, let's see if I can uh, quickly... Can I just read you a Dickinson poem? Y- yes, that'd be, that'd be um, wonderful. So I'm on page 121. Uh, if if you want to go there, um, and this is one of my favorite Dickinson poems. It's one that I love, and I'll read a, a little bit before and after. In an expediency of naming, for example, to make a prairie, to which I can't help returning, composes its brief self a kind of instruction manual like this. To make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee, one clover and a bee, and reverie. The reverie alone will do if bees are few. Of this an imagination, the poem's deceptively colloquial it, inhabited perhaps by a god but certainly by the poet, who is the real power here, begins by creating in mind the first line's entire prairie, then focusing down, scaling back, reversing time, removes that prairie, leaving merely a clover and one bee, one of each, no more. We can stop there, I think, Yeah. unless you want me to keep going. No, that's, that's, that's great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, that yeah you you've you you um you, t- you talk about you know there there's depths there um mm-hmm. in the poem and you've you've expounded at least part of that yeah yeah and i'll just quickly say it would take longer if i read what i've carefully constructed about it but of course um this is an instruction manual that's all for making a prairie that's also a joke because dickinson was a botanist and she knows that you can't there's no construction under which you can make a prairie with one clover and one bee. Uh, and so what this is a poem about is not how to make a prairie, but about reverie, about how to make a poem and how to make a space for the imagination to inhabit. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. 
Oh, we just have about uh, oh, three or four minutes left in the conversation. I wanted to talk about this. In, in that passage I had you first read, at the very end you talk about walking. And um, mm-hmm. and I'll just reread this, this uh, last sentence from that passage. Um, from it you can contemplate the ruined castle on the other side of the valley and consider how destruction comes to all bodies, often so slowly we don't notice. You do you do discuss a lot through these uh, essays, um, uh, you know, approaching death, uh, our bodies breaking down. Um, you talk about your father. I'll just quote here, this. Nearing 90, loses his mind in the most material way. Pieces of it flow out, cut off, literally dying, becoming detritus useless. Islands, you say. And so when you would encounter, when you would go and visit him, um, he couldn't express himself in the ways he usually did, as just one example. Yeah, so um, my during the course of writing this book, which was written probably, um, the essays were written in order, so the one um, on walking that we're focusing on uh, was the first essay written for the book, um, and I didn't know I was writing a book uh, at that point. And um, over time, over the period of writing this book, my husband and I have both gotten older, we've faced our own sort of health issues, and my father uh, had to go into care and went into his um, final decline. He died uh, literally a couple of weeks before the COVID lockdown. We were able to be with him, but if he had waited a few weeks longer, he would have died alone, as so many many people have. And so to begin this book in pretty hale, good health with everybody and everything intact, and then as the essays were written to have, you know, one thing and another thing and another thing um, come undone is, I think, just part of what it is to be alive and what it is to, to grow older. And uh, it, this is a theme that really knits the book together. And I wrote that sentence about destruction not knowing that this was going to be the beginning of a book about um, not only joy, which is, this is very much a book about joy, but also about um, the destruction of the body. And I loved uh, getting to know your father just a little bit uh, throughout the the essays. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't have time to go into it, but uh, he, <laughs> you have a, a passage where he tells you to focus on the ball, right? He wants you to get into tennis. You just yeah. don't, you just can't, you just can't do it. <laughs> That's what he wants you to do. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, keep your keep your eye on the ball, GD, Catherine yeah, Amanda. That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'll just uh, I'll I'll just read this line here. We don't have really time to discuss it. Uh, you say after he died, of course, people told me things about him. I wish I'd always known. That's I've had that experience too. Yeah. When, when people have died close yeah. to me. Well, wonderful collection. Uh, it's the stranger I become on walking, looking, and writing. Uh, the author is Catherine Coles. Uh, she is Distinguished Professor of English at uh, University of Utah. And uh, Catherine Coles will be in conversation with Catherine Coles. Uh, the other Catherine Coles, author of Maps and Transcripts of the Ordinary World. That's a virtual event uh, sponsored by the King's English Bookshop. And that's June 3rd, 6 p.m. You do have to register, and you can do that by going to the King's English uh, Bookshop website. Catherine Coles, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure for me, too. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. And uh, we will uh, finish the hour as we do on Wednesdays with Beehive Archive. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. 
You know those world-famous Green River melons? Well, they need lots of water to build that juicy goodness. This week, learn how one farm along the Green River solved the problem of getting water to its fields. First, this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. The town of Green River, Utah is known for its melons, but feeding a thirsty crop takes water, and getting water from the river to the fields takes ingenuity and engineering. Just about six miles upstream from the town lies a major reason why the melons in this area are so renowned. Beginning in 1894, local farmers built diversions across the Green River from brush, wood, and rock in order to push water into irrigation canals that ran on either side of the river. Called the Tusher Dam, this structure was upgraded to concrete in 1934. In addition to the diversions, Euro-American settlers started building water wheels on the Green River as early as the 1880s. Water wheels lifted water out of the river and into the adjoining fields through a series of connected canals and ditches. Using the power of the river current, these early wooden wheels had buckets attached that would fill with water, then be lifted up and dump their load of water into a pipeline or flume. While most of the water wheels were replaced by modern pumps, there are two that survive at the Hastings Ranch, right next to the Tusher Dam. A few yards from shore sits the original wheel. It was built in 1940 from lumber and bolts and stands 10 feet wide, 30 feet in diameter, and had 18 wooden buckets to lift the water. What was extra ingenious about this wheel is that its great height allowed water to be transported to fields upstream. This wheel irrigated about a thousand acres and operated until 1985. That year, it was replaced by a modern cutting-edge steel version designed by one of the Hastings family sons who had gone to work in the aviation industry during World War II. Sadly, the heavy steel wheel never really worked and it sits on the shore today as an example of how the old ways are sometimes the better way. While the water wheels no longer go round and round, the Tusher Dam and its canals are still in use today and local ingenuity still gets water to those melons. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Utah State Historic Preservation Office. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this recipe for... Barbecue pineapple chicken kebabs. We always have a great time, and so will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Tune in Sunday afternoon at 1 here on Utah Public Radio. This is Don Gomes and Tori. I listen to Utah Public Radio at 94.5. Tori may be far from some areas of Utah, but Utah Public Radio keeps us in touch with a window on the world. It's like we're right next door. I'm Susie Lafaelli from St. George, Utah. I listen to Utah Public Radio on my UPR app.
This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.